Well, Will, thank you very much indeed for the welcome. It's great to be back with you as we continue our journey through this most famous sermon, probably, that's ever been preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it would be great, as ever, if you could keep that open in front of you and follow along with me as we work our way through it. And if you were with us last week, you'll know we've opened this new series listening in on this first and most famous of Jesus' sermons. But we only managed to look at the first three of the eight statements of blessing with which he begins. We saw, though, already how different Jesus' kingdom is to the world in which we live. Because this world celebrates and gives its approval to the strong and to the successful and to the beautiful But God's favour rests on those who admit that in their souls they are bankrupt before him, who grieve over their sin, and who are gentle in their relations with others. And this morning we're going to look at the remaining five blessings that Jesus bestows respectively on the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. But as we start, I want to suggest three slightly different ways in which we can look at each of these blessings, or maybe better, three different jobs that they perform in our lives. And first, they convict us of our sin. I mentioned this last week. It's impossible to read these statements without realising just how far short we fall of the standards of God's heavenly kingdom. Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, but far too much of the the time I'm proud. He blesses those who mourn and grieve for their sin, but far too much of the time I'm complacent about mine. He blesses the meek, but I'm abrasive. Those who hunger for righteousness, I just nibble at it. So it goes on. The, The blessings are like a searchlight that reveal the darkness in our hearts. So they're convicting but they're also inspiring. Ever since the beginning, God's plan has been to create a glorious new world of selflessness and love in which all people are treated with the honour and dignity and respect that they deserve. And God himself is given the praise and glory that he deserves. And these blessings give us a, a glimpse of how God's people can live now in a way that anticipates and reflects 
the eternal kingdom that will be our true home. As those who have been forgiven for all of our wrongs by Jesus, those who have been given a place in his kingdom freely and by grace, when we read these blessings, we're inspired, I hope, and we think that is how I want to live. I don't want to be someone who who stokes the fires of conflict. I want to be a peacemaker. I'm, I'm not content with looking good on the outside. I want to be pure in heart. I don't want to be a coward. I want to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake, if that's what it takes. So we pray, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for preparing a place in heaven for me. Please, by your spirit, work in me and help me to live a a radical kingdom life now while I'm here on earth and waiting for the coming glory. So they convict, they inspire, and they encourage. I'm sure that at some time we've all had the experience of doing or saying something that has earned the disapproval of someone that we really respect. Mark Twain said that living with the disapproval of a neighbour is more dreaded than wolves and death. I might overstate it a little bit, not sure how many wolves there are here in Dundee, but we all have people whose approval really matters to us. But there's no one whose opinion matters more than God's. And eight times here, it's as if he parts the skies and points down from heaven at you if you're someone who follows Jesus. And he says, my divine favor and blessing rests upon you. You are blessed. That's so encouraging, isn't it? We're all sinners. None of us are perfect. We know that. But in Christ, we have God's blessing. Controversially this morning, we don't have two points or even three, but five. We're going to have one for each of the the qualities that Jesus loves to bless. First, the hungry. The hungry. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And now this is about our our deepest cravings and longings. And the imagery is helpful because just as those who are physically bloated – don't hunger for food and thirst for water, neither do the the spiritually self-satisfied hunger and thirst for righteousness. They think they've arrived already. They're content with who they are. But the kingdom man or woman is different. Always striving and never complacent. Always becoming. Always wanting more of God and of Jesus Christ. You could picture the hunger and thirst of someone who's been without food and water for a few days and the tummy aches and the mouth feels like sandpaper and they'd give anything to have their needs supplied. The psalmist said, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. Jesus himself tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here too, you and I will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember, God is the righteous one. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just a a desire to be better at keeping rules or to conform to some abstract quality of goodness. It is a desperate desire for more of God himself, to know him, to experience his presence, to love him more, and therefore to become more like him, to lead a life that in every way reflects the character of our righteous Lord. It's good and pleasing to him. So this is a a very personal longing. Some have said it's primarily a longing to be justified. Others that it's primarily a desire to see social justice in the world. But the the real focus here is, is your deepest desire and mine. What am I longing for at the moment? We're filming this morning in an empty church building because we're still in lockdown. Uh, Many of us are longing for an end to lockdown, the chance for life to return to some kind of normality, whatever that is, to be able to hug our friends again or shake their hands. But how about a, a desire for more of God, for more godliness in your life? It's convicting because I don't crave that as I should. It's inspiring, because when I do stop and think about it, I want to be a better man. And it's encouraging, because if that is my desire, then God personally promises to satisfy it. That starts now, and you'll see that God doesn't work in us apart from our desire to grow, but as we hunger and as we pray, so he promises to transform us from one degree of glory into another, to conform us more and more to the likeness of his son. We won't always see that happening. It will always be a a bumpy ride with lots of failure along the way. But God promises to help you to grow in righteousness. And we should expect that and work for it and pray for it. But this blessing points us forward to the last day as well. There's a line in Psalm 17 when David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The Apostle John says, we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And this verse doesn't, it is meant to make us long for that day. I love the way that the the Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin used to look forward to heaven. He said, I shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All of my lusts and corruptions I shall be rid of. Those croaking toads will fall off in a moment. I wonder what are the croaking toads of sin in your life, the battles that you keep losing. They will all be gone forever. There'll be no more harsh words. There'll be no more bitter thoughts. There'll be no more lust or greed ever. Ours will be a life of perfect love for God and perfect love for others. And you'll be filled, satisfied 
with righteousness. Second this morning, the merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. A bit later in the gospel, Jesus tells a parable um, about a servant who somehow manages to rack up a debt that in modern money would be about two and a half billion pounds. It comes time to settle. Obviously, he can't pay, but the most amazing thing happens because when he falls on his knees and begs, his master is described as being full of mercy. And so he decides to cancel this servant's debt completely. It's Jesus' picture of the way that, that God treats us when we come to him with all of our spiritual debt and ask for mercy. He is gracious and he's compassionate and he forgives us and he removes our sins from us, says the Bible, as far as the east is from the west. So great is his abundant and overflowing mercy. But back in the parable, the next thing we know is that this newly liberated servant bumps into someone who owes him about four and a half thousand pounds. And you think, well, he's bound to be merciful as well because he's just been forgiven two and a half billion. Of course, he can forgive four and a half thousand. But no, even when his friend falls to his knees and begs, he seizes him and chokes him and has him thrown in prison. The master hears of it and says, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And that's Jesus' point here in Matthew 5. He's saying when someone has personally received God's mercy, they will necessarily then be merciful to others. Not that we'll overlook their wrongs, not that we'll excuse them or pretend they don't matter, but that we will forgive them as God forgives us. It's not that we're earning God's mercy when we do that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. But my mercy to others is confirmatory evidence, if you like, that I know the God of mercy and therefore that I have nothing to fear on the last day. It's convicting because I'm not always as merciful as I should be. Isn't it easy to, to nurse a hurt rather than to let go of it? It's inspiring because I know how much better our life would be if our mercies were genuinely new every morning, just like our Lord's. And it's encouraging. What a blessing this is for the kingdom. I asked a Muslim friend once how confident he felt that he would be in paradise when he died. And at first he was a bit sheepish and he didn't want to answer. But eventually he said, I just don't know. I'm not a very good Muslim. I just have to hope that Allah might be merciful to me. Contrast that with one of you who said to me recently, do you know, I'm, I'm not worried about COVID. I'm one of the people who, if they get it, will almost certainly die. 
but I'm not afraid because I know the mercy of God and I know where I'm going. For the one who is trusting in Jesus, there is no need to worry or second guess what God will do when we stand before him. We have no guilt in life and no fear in death because it's not about the quality of our performance, but about God's character and Jesus's work. We will receive mercy. Third this morning, the pure. Verse eight says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The heart, biblically, is not the seat of my emotions, but the the epicenter of who I am. It's my control center. So this is a, a purity that goes beyond mere externals. Um, later in the Gospels, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being like whitewashed tombs, for being sparkling and clean on the outside, but rotting and dead on the inside. But God sees the heart. The background here is Psalm 24, where David asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. And again, that's convicting. It drives me back to verse 3. It reminds me that I could never approach God on my own. I'm not pure in heart. I know that you're not either. But we're reminded too of the wonder of what Jesus has done for his people. The writer to the Hebrews says that we can draw near to God with a true heart in the full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. When we come to Jesus and ask for mercy, he doesn't tell us to go away and purify our own hearts. He washes us clean from the inside out. So by faith then and in Christ, if we've trusted in him, we are pure in heart, as incredible as that sounds. We've still got so much to learn, I know that. We need to be better at living out in our experience the purity that is given to us by grace. But we can be encouraged because if we've come to Christ, friend, you you will see God, is Jesus' promise. We all know the, the joy that comes from seeing an old friend. Something we're looking forward to, many of us for the end of lockdown. Maybe you've been apart for a time, you see each other, wrap your arms around each other, and it is wonderful. You will see God face to face. In Psalm 27, King David says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that will be our eternal privilege. Do you know, even if all of our worldly dreams come true, they wouldn't produce even a billionth part of the joy and the delight 
that will belong to us as God's children on the day when we see him. Fourth, the peacemakers. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm not sure which of these two camps you're in. They say that some of us are by nature easygoing and conflict-averse, while others love an argument and insist on having the last word. If you're isolating with someone, and I've just started an argument by suggesting that you might be in one of those two camps, I apologize. But certainly it's, it's all too easy, isn't it? If there is a disagreement, to say something that inflames the situation and makes it worse. But you'll notice here that the citizens of the kingdom don't just avoid quarrels and conflict and keep the peace. We actively make peace. So we don't stoke the fires of conflict and say things that pour oil onto the fire. We choose instead replies that calm a relational storm and that sow attitudes of peace and harmony between people. The peacemaker will be quick to see things from the other's point of view. They'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They'll be as slow as possible to take offense. They'll choose to be wronged rather than to retaliate. Do you know the 10-10-10 rule? A situation of potential conflict emerges Maybe it involves you or you're just a a listening ear. And in the heat of the moment, it seems so important to have your say, doesn't it? But we're encouraged to ask ourselves, will this still matter in 10 minutes? Or in 10 months? Or in 10 years? Because if it won't, why not choose peace and let it go? Jesus says, blessed are those who help people to live at peace with each other in a family, in a friendship group, in a firm. Blessed are they. There's another element to this as well. Isaiah said, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And I'm persuaded that Jesus has that sort of peacemaking in mind here as well. He's saying, blessed are those who lead other people to be at peace with God, who proclaim to them the gospel of reconciliation, who introduce them to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus himself. What a great prayer that is for my life. Lord, make me a peacemaker, even in these days of the coronavirus. Make me a peacemaker. It's convicting. It's inspiring. It's encouraging because peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Um, That phrase, sons of God, has two elements to it. One is about our status in God's family. It's the hope to which the Old Testament Pointed back there, um, Israel was God's son collectively, and the kings were God's sons individually. 
But now in Christ, that right is extended to all of God's children. And we can call him Abba Father, just like Jesus did. Why does it say sons rather than sons and daughters? It sounds a bit odd in 2020, doesn't it? But in the the first century, only a son could inherit their father's estate. So to be a son was also to be an heir. And every Christian, male or female, is a son in the sense that we have an inheritance stored up in heaven for us. So this blessing is partly about our family status, but it's partly too about our family likeness. You'll know that if ever you want to endear yourself to a teenager, uh, all you have to do is tell them how much they're like their mum or like their dad. Um, I always used to love it when people said that to me. I've seen the same uh, trait in our own kids as they've reached that kind of age. But think of the, the privilege of this. Someone says to you, you know the, the way that you always try to see the best in other people, the way that you always try to sow peace in place of discord, you're so like your father in heaven. Finally, this morning, the persecuted. Point five, the persecuted. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the the focus of this final blessing may be a surprise to us, but Jesus taught that, that citizens of his kingdom should expect two different reactions from the world. Sometimes our Our righteous living is going to attract people. They'll see our love and our hope and they'll think, I want to know what makes them different. But then at other times, like a magnet, our righteousness will repel them instead. Think of it, Jesus was perfectly righteous all of the time. But people didn't love him for it. They hated and crucified him. He says to us, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul reminds us, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the Christian would never go looking for a fight. That would be daft. And we're to make sure that if we're opposed, it's for righteousness sake and not just because we're being contrary and objectionable. But there will be times in our Christian life when we're insulted for no other reason than that we take the name of Jesus. And when that happens, says Jesus, you are blessed. The favor of God rests upon you because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same promise as verse 3, it rounds out this set of eight blessings. Not as we said last week, yours will be the kingdom, but that God in his grace delights to share it with you now by faith and promises that you will reign with him in glory one day. So these eight blessings convict us, they inspire us, and they encourage us. I don't know if you you find this list of kingdom values surprising or not. I have to say that I love it. And so often in our world, if you want to get on, 
You need to sell yourself the hardest and push yourself forward the furthest and take no prisoners and win at all costs. But Jesus doesn't bless the bold and the beautiful or the strong and the successful. He doesn't bless those who have got a religious CV as long as their arm. Perhaps he he pointed at a poor fisherman in the crowd. One whose face was weather-beaten, hands calloused from years of hard labour, a memory full of his mistakes in life. But in his heart was a profound admission of spiritual bankruptcy. Or perhaps he pointed to a, a prostitute, her body and her mind bruised and scarred by a lifetime of abuse. Not a penny to her name, but in her heart a real desire for change, a thirst to go God's way. And he said to them, blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom. There's probably someone watching this morning who's who's painfully aware that things are not good for them, spiritually speaking. Someone else who many years into their Christian life is still succumbing to the same temptations. Maybe someone else who knows that they have never personally come to Christ and admitted their need of him. You are exactly the sort of person that Jesus came for, that he was willing to die for. Exactly the sort of person he had in mind when he he told the crowds to repent and believe. Exactly the sort of person to whom he said, the eternal approval and blessing of God, your maker and your judge, can rest upon you today. So yes, we're to be convicted of how far short we fall of the glory of God. But we don't stop there. We're inspired to live the life of the kingdom and we're encouraged we have if we've trusted in jesus received gracious favor from god he approves of us he has welcomed us and we have a glorious future with god he has prepared a brand new creation for us let's pray together Our Father, we want to praise you once again that our standing before you is dependent not upon our work and our performance and our transformed life, but upon the Lord Jesus, upon his grace and his willingness to die in the place of sinners like us. We thank you then that in him we can be blessed. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help each one of us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That you would help us to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, and to be willing even to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. Please strengthen us to live kingdom lives in the present and fill our hearts with hope for the eternity that we will spend with you. 
We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.